Section 15 of Waverley, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Waverley, or Tis Sixty Years Since, Volume 1, by Sir Walter Scott. Section 15. Chapter 10. Rose Branwardine and Her Father Miss Bradwardine was but seventeen, yet, at the last races of the county town of, upon her health being proposed among a round of beauties, the laird of Bumper Quay, permanent toastmaster and croupier of the Bowther Willery Club, not only said more to the pledge in a pint bumper of Bordeaux, but, ere pouring forth the libation, denominated the divinity to whom it was dedicated, the Rose of Tully Violin upon which festive occasion three cheers were given by all the sitting members of that respectable society whose throats the wine had left capable of such exertion nay i am well assured that the sleeping partners of the company snorted applause and that although strong bumpers and weak brains had consigned two or three to the floor yet even these fallen as they were from their high estate and weltering i will carry the parody no further uttered diverse inarticulate sounds, intimating their assent to the motion. Such unanimous applause could not be extorted but by acknowledged merit, and Rose Bradwardine not only deserved it, but also the approbation of much more rational persons than the Bowther Willery Club could have mustered, even before discussion of the first magnum. She was indeed a very pretty girl of the Scotch cast of beauty, that is, with a profusion of hair of paley gold, and a skin like the snow of her own mountains in whiteness. Yet she had not a pallid or pensive cast of countenance. Her features, as well as her temper, had a lively expression. Her complexion, though not florid, was so pure as to seem transparent, and the slightest emotion sent her whole blood at once to her face and neck. Her form, though under the common size, was remarkably elegant, and her motions light, easy, and unembarrassed. She came from another part of the garden to receive Captain Waverley, with a manner that hovered between bashfulness and courtesy. The first greetings passed, Edward learned from her that the dark hag, which had somewhat puzzled him in the butler's account of his master's avocations, had nothing to do either with a black cat or a broomstick but was simply a portion of oak copse which was to be felled that day. She offered, with diffident civility, to show the stranger the way to the spot, which, it seems, was not far distant. But they were prevented by the appearance of the Baron of Bradwardine in person, who, summoned by David Galatly, now appeared, on hospitable thoughts intent, clearing the ground at a prodigious rate with swift and long strides which reminded Waverley of the seven-league boots of the nursery fable. He was a tall, thin, athletic figure, old indeed and grey-haired, but with every muscle rendered as tough as whipcord by constant exercise. He was dressed carelessly, and more like a Frenchman than an Englishman of the period, while, from his hard features and perpendicular rigidity of stature, he bore some resemblance to a Swiss officer of the guards who had resided some time at Paris, and caught the costume, but not the ease or manner, of its inhabitants. The truth was, that his language and habits were as heterogeneous as his external appearance. 
owing to his natural disposition to study, or perhaps to a very general Scottish fashion of giving young men of rank a legal education, he had been bred with a view to the bar. But the politics of his family precluding the hope of his rising in that profession, Mr. Bradwardine travelled with high reputation for several years, and made some campaigns in foreign service. After his demolay with the law of high treason in 1715, he had lived in retirement, conversing almost entirely with those of his own principles in the vicinage. The pedantry of the lawyer, superinduced upon the military pride of the soldier, might remind a modern of the days of the zealous volunteer service, when the bar gown of our pleaders was often flung over a blazing uniform. To this must be added the prejudices of ancient birth and Jacobite politics, greatly strengthened by habits of solitary and secluded authority, which, though exercised only within the bounds of his half-cultivated estate, was there indisputable and undisputed. For, as he used to observe, the lands of Bradwardine, Tully Violin, and others, had been erected into a free barony by a charter from David I, cum liberali potest, habendi curius e justicas, cum fossa e firca, lie, pit, and gallows, et saca, et soca, et thol, et theme, et infang thief, et outfang thief, sive hand habend, sive back barend. The particular meaning of all these cabalistical words few or none could explain, but they implied, upon the whole, that the baron of Bradwardine might, in case of delinquency, imprison, try, and execute his vassals at his pleasure. Like James I, however, the present possessor of this authority was more pleased in talking about prerogative than in exercising it. And accepting that he imprisoned two poachers in the dungeon of the old tower of Tully Violin, where they were sorely frightened by ghosts, and almost eaten by rats, and that he set an old woman in the jugs, or Scottish pillory, for saying there were mere fools in the laird's ha-house than Davy Galatly. I do not learn that he was accused of abusing his high powers. Still, however, the conscious pride of possessing them gave additional importance to his language and deportment. At his first address to Waverley, it would seem that the hearty pleasure he felt to behold the nephew of his friend had somewhat discomposed the stiff and upright dignity of the Baron of Bradwardine's demeanour, for the tears stood in the old gentleman's eyes, when, Having first shaken Edward heartily by the hand in the English fashion, he embraced him a la mode Francois, and kissed him on both sides of his face, while the hardness of his grip, and the quantity of Scotch snuff which his accolade communicated, called corresponding drops of moisture to the eyes of his guest. "'Upon the honour of a gentleman,' he said, "'but it makes me young again to see you here, Mr. Waverley. A worthy scion of the old stock of Waverley honour, Spes altera, as Morrow hath it, and you have the look of the old line, Captain Waverley, not so portly yet as my old friend Sir Everard. May cela viendra avec le tem, as my Dutch acquaintance, Baron Kitkitbrook, said of the sagace of Madame Saint Espose. And so ye have mounted the cockade. Right, right, though I could have wished the colour different, and so I would have deemed might Sir Everard but no more of that. I am old, and times are changed. And how does the worthy knight baronet, and the fair Mrs. Rachel? Ah, ye laugh, young man. 
in troth she was the fair mrs rachel in the year of grace seventeen hundred and sixteen but time passes a singular predantur ani that is most certain but once again you are most heartily welcome to my poor house of tully violin hie to the house rose and see that alexander saunderson looks out the old chateau margot which i sent from bordeaux to dundee in the year seventeen thirteen rose tripped off demurely enough till she turned the first corner then ran with the speed of a fairy that she might gain leisure after discharging her father's commission to put her own dress in order and produce all her little finery an occupation for which the approaching dinner hour left but limited time we cannot rival the luxuries of your english table captain waverley or give you the epaulet latiores of waverley honour i say epaulet rather than prandium because the latter phrase is popular epaulet ad senatum prandium vero ad populum attinet says suetonius tranquillus but i trust ye will applaud my bordeaux say de du oriel as captain vinsauf used to say vinum prime note the principle of st andrew dominated it and once more captain waverley right glad am i that ye are here to drink the best my cellar can make forthcoming this speech with the necessary interjectional answers continued from the lower alley where they met up to the door of the house where four or five servants in old-fashioned liveries headed by alexander saunderson the butler who now bore no token of the sable stains of the garden received them in grand costume in an old hall hung round with pikes and with bows with old bucklers and corslets that had borne many shrewd blows with much ceremony and still more real kindness the baron without stopping in any intermediate apartment conducted his guest through several into the great dining parlour wainscoted with black oak and hung round with the pictures of his ancestry where a table was set forth in form for six persons and an old-fashioned buffet displayed all the ancient and massive plate of the bradwardine family a bell was now heard at the head of the avenue for an old man who acted as porter upon gala days had caught the alarm given by waverley's arrival and repairing to his post announced the arrival of other guests these as the baron assured his young friend were very estimable persons there was the young laird of belmawapple a falconer by surname of the house of glenfarquhar given right much to field sports gaudet ecus a cannabis but a very discreet young gentleman then there was the laird of killincurite who had devoted his leisure until tillage and agriculture and boasted himself to be possessed of a bull of matchless merit brought from the county of devon the demonia of the romans if we can trust robert of Cirencester, he is as ye may well suppose from such a tendency but of yeoman extraction servabit odorum testa du and i believe between ourselves his grandsire was from the wrong side of the border one bull's egg who came hither as a steward or bailiff or ground officer or something in that department to the last jernigo of killincurite who died of an atrophy after his master's death sir ye would hardly believe such a scandal but this bull's egg being portly and comely of aspect intermarried with the lady dowager who was young and amorous and possessed himself of the estate 
which devolved on this unhappy woman by a settlement of her umwile husband, in direct contravention of an unrecorded tally, and to the prejudice of the disposer's own flesh and blood, in the person of his natural heir and seventh cousin, Jernigo of Tipperhewitt, whose family was so reduced by the ensuing lawsuit, that his representative is now serving as a private gentleman sentinel in the Highland Black Watch. But this gentleman, Mr. Bullseg of Killincurite, that now is, has good blood in his veins by the mother and grandmother, who were both of the family of Picklatillin, and he is well liked and looked upon, and knows his own place. And God forbid, Captain Waverley, that we of irreproachable lineage should exult over him, when it may be, that in the eighth, ninth, or tenth generation, his progeny may rank, in a manner, with the old gentry of the country. Rank and ancestry, sir, should be the last words in the mouths of us of unblemished race. Vi ea nostra voco, as Nazo saith. There is, besides, a clergyman of the true, though suffering, Episcopal Church of Scotland. Footnote. See Note 9. He was a confessor in her cause after the year 1715, when a Whiggish mob destroyed his meeting-house, tore his surplice, and plundered his dwelling-house of four silver spoons, intromitting also with his mart and his meal-ark, and with two barrels, one of single and one of double ale, besides three bottles of brandy. My Baron Bailey and Dewar, Mr. Duncan McWeeble, is the fourth on our list. There is a question, owing to the incertitude of ancient orthography, whether he belongs to the clan of Wheedle or of Quibble, but both have produced persons eminent in law. As such he described them by person and name, they entered, and dinner was served as they came. Note 9. After the revolution of 1688, and on some occasions when the spirit of the Presbyterians had been unusually animated against their opponents, the Episcopal clergymen, who were chiefly non-jurors, were exposed to be mobbed, as we should now say, or rabbled, as the phrase then went, to expiate their political heresies. But notwithstanding that the Presbyterians had the persecution in Charles the Second and his brother's time to exasperate them, there was little mischief done beyond the kind of petty violence mentioned in the text. End of section 15